I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by the winemaking brothers of Rasa Vineyards in Walla Walla, Washington, Pinto and Bilo Naravne. Stay tuned. So it's pretty amazing how the integration of art and science is around us everywhere. I've certainly found that to be the case in medicine, and I've felt this sense from so many guests who've been on this show. Speaking of which, thanks so much for listening, subscribing, sharing with your friends, and following us at MyGoodFraint, with a T, on social media. So when the combinations of art and science are spectacular, they not only make for great experiences, but they compel us to seek more, build our passions, and share the stories with others. I guess that's exactly what might happen if you're enjoying a fine wine, and that's definitely what I found out in sharing a conversation with Pinto and Bilo Naravne, two Indian-American brothers who immigrated here at an early age and left careers in tech to follow their dream and passion of becoming winemakers, founding Rasa Vineyards and producing their first two wines in 2007. Producing from the eastern Washington and northeastern Oregon region, their journey has been filled with an academic rigor as Billo has a master's degree in viticulture and winemaking and is a certified master of wine, and Pinto has started this process himself. They also share a lot of themselves through the wine labels and their storytelling, their background, their journey, their passion for music and baseball, and we started out our conversation about how their interests blossomed into becoming full-time winemakers. I think for us, it was as our interest kind of kept building throughout the years in about 2000, roughly, we started talking about, wouldn't it be cool to start a winery someday and leave tech world and, and go do what we love. And we just kind of kept, you know, it would come up in conversation throughout the years. And in uh, 2005, you know, I, I was not enjoying my time in, in, in tech and, uh, anymore as managing a fairly large team of consultants, uh, never had a moment's peace type of thing. Uh, and I had talked to Pinto about about this. I said, listen, we've been talking about it for a while. I don't mind going back to school. You know, this uh, wasn't possible for Pinto. He has three kids. Uh, so I had applied to uh, UC Davis's master's program uh, for viticulture and uh, And I got my acceptance letter in March of 2006. So I called Pinto up. I said, hey, Pinto, I got in. You know, time to make a decision here. What do you, what do you think? You know, And that was the year uh, he was turning 40. And he says, you know, if we don't do this now, we'll be old men someday regretting the decision. Let's let's go for it. You know, so I started UC Davis. And when I was halfway through the master's program, uh, we launched Rasa. Right. Everything kind of fell into place relatively quickly after after that. But I think uh, most people that have a passion for anything or certainly in the case of wine, there is an epiphany moment where you feel like, okay, I need to pursue this. Yeah. And luckily for us, uh, Billo and I, I actually shared that moment um, back in, is it 92 or 93, uh, there was a bottle of uh, 1988 Mouton Shield on mm-hmm. sale at some, like a Bottle King kind of store that was going out of business. And it was at some ridiculously low price of like $65 a bottle at that time, which sure. was very low. But it was 10 times more than we've ever paid for a bottle of wine. Right. 
So we hemmed and hawed uh, in the aisle and we said, you know what, we, we should try it because we'll never fight it at this price. It was just a revelation. We've never tasted anything as complex and evolving in glass as it was. And then the next day we had, there was a little leftover, we had it the next day and it was even better. Uh, and that was the moment they were like, okay, there's something really to this. It's not just a beverage. It is, it is uh, artistic, it is uh, artisanal, and um, we're in. And then that's where, that's where Bill and I both um, really started getting into learning everything we could about wine and, and going to as many tastings as possible, you know, going to Napa, going to other wine regions. Actually, I spent my honeymoon in Bordeaux. Um, I joke around that I think my wife was there. I don't remember. <laughs> do, do you guys, in some ways, do you ever catch yourselves and say, hey, wait a minute, we're, we're really winemakers wine and not just enthusiasts, but you're part of the entire, not just culture, but, but you're fueling that, that culture. Yeah, you know, I think I think at least uh, at, at least for me, you know, it's kind of interesting is that every day I kind of wake up and I'm like, wow, this, this is this is really we, we've done it. Right. Yeah. And to me, it's like you're finding and having made that transition uh, into wine and, and we, we wanted to do it for so long. It's, it's just, you know, we wake up every day kind of enthusiastic about the day. Right. Uh, and looking forward to it. And you know, I'm in vineyards. I'm in the winery meeting with customers, talking to distributors kind of that full gamut of stuff. And we, and we love every aspect of it. So, you know, that, uh, that old adage that, you know, if you do something you love, you, you'll never work another day in your life. You know, I think we both found that to be, to be very true. Yeah. We, we both came from high tech and uh, we were very good at it. You know, um, I, I below worked at uh, HP as a consultant. I had my own uh, consulting company that I ran and we were good at it. And we certainly could have had, we did have happy lives and we could have continued to have that. But uh, there was a part that wasn't fulfilled for us both. And uh, wine, oddly enough, allowed for that uh, expression. You know, we, we grew up as typical Indians. You know, my parents were like, you guys can do whatever you want in life. You know, you could, you could be a doctor or you could be an engineer, <laughs> you know, yeah. whatever you want. Or a, a scientist, <laughs> you know, take your pick. So, yeah. uh, you know, we didn't question it. We, we have you know, strong analytical skills. So we both became engineers. And then in our 20s, we realized, hey, this, this is, you know, we were railroaded. There's this whole other world out there. Yeah. And we're not just left brain. We, we, we're also creative types. Um, Below started uh, um, you know, learning to play classical piano, and he's largely self-taught and, and, and pretty good. And I started uh, writing, and I fell in love with poetry. Um, and, and it was a nice creative outlet for me. And then at that same time, we fell in love with wine and then then at this crossroads of you know needing to express ourselves and having this love of wine uh really that's how the winery came about my thought then is that was it in fact important for your success as winemakers to have had that tech experience to have had that sort of foray into your own professional lives and and the, the journey as, as winemakers, in fact, was at all informed by what your experiences were in the tech environment or as, as engineers, for that matter. Absolutely. I, I, think, uh, I think it's informed by uh, multiple things. Expressing yourself through wine is a great medium for 
people who have engineering backgrounds who have right so below part of his education he you know we get to learn a lot about organic chemistry and that comes fairly easy to us right so um we can there's a notion that you know if you know you know everything about or uh, organic chem and you know your tartaric acidity and you know you know all about the uh, buffering capacity uh, and you know you can make good wines and you can make wines by the numbers so but what you know what we do is really take that uh education and take that chemistry knowledge for example yeah. but you uh, use it as a as a, a, a bounding limit so you use it as a fence so you know it, it enables us to be creative in the in the vineyard and the and in the uh, the winery to let the fruit express itself having that that engineering background it really absolutely uh, helps i think for for being a good winemaker well and by the way this is giving me ptsd to my pre-med days and my ochem classes there so i mean i, th I think <laughs> i have taken a much different turn here for sure right <laughs> but billo how about how about for you i mean yeah I, I i think i do i do agree with that you know it really kind of forces a way to think that methodology that you kind of learn is is very applicable to the winemaking world right because you've got a bunch of different wines from different lots and different barrels and all of the various parameters that that go into into the process how do you keep a handle on everything how do you blend all of these things we kind of bring so so that's been you know pretty invaluable but you know, now we get away from from that aspect of it in our in our winemaking. I, I would say ninety five percent of our decisions are all done kind of more on in an artistic manner. That is, we've worked so hard to train our our sensory capabilities. All right, so everything is done by taste, by sense of smell. Uh, we will, of course, run the numbers if we need to. Uh, for if it's ever a situation where we're possibly in doubt and need 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 to need some scientific hard data validation, so to speak, we will we will of course do that. But I would say 95% of the time now, everything is done by by gut feel, by taste, uh, all the sensory aspects, and that really, to me, is that artistic side of winemaking, right? And uh, this is, I think, why I've never gotten bored of winemaking. It is this this beautiful blend of art and science, right? It is really engaging both both hemispheres of the brain. I, I don't think I will ever get bored of it. You know? Let me ask you both this: You're, I think, the only Indian or South Asian American winemakers that I know. Is this sometimes a surprise to some? Is it a surprise to you both? Do you ever catch yourselves thinking about that um, in some way? You know, I, I honestly don't. Uh, I, do, I do know of a couple other uh, Indian Indian winemakers, uh, but it's, it's just something that doesn't even remotely enter my my thinking, right? Uh, I, I'm a winemaker and that's, uh, that's all I do. It doesn't, I don't <laughs> think of it as, you know, we are Indian winemakers or this or that. Yeah, right. so that's just me. It just never, it never occurs to me, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, I'm just the opposite. Uh, yeah, it occurs to me a great deal. I, th I think uh, um, it's it's important for as minorities uh, uh, growing up. I mean, we were lucky. We, we you know we grew up in a predominantly white community, but we were welcome. We didn't have to deal with racism or anything like that for the most part. You know, maybe something here and there. But uh, but we've been quite fortunate to be in this country and allow uh, that enabled us to just express ourselves the way we want to without any kind of hindrance. I love when minorities enter traditional non-minority roles and excel. 
I think I think it's important. Uh, I think it's important for everybody as a society to say, hey, it doesn't matter who you are. You can, you know, you can do this thing. So, you know, when we started, I've actually had people, uh, you know, I jokingly, not not in any kind of uh, prejudice way, jokingly say, hey, what 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 can two Indians know anything about winemaking? It's not part of your culture, especially when the prices that we're charging. And my answer is that my answer is simple. It's like, yeah, we may not actually know wine. But we know curry. <laughs> we know, you know. I mean, we understand blending and nuances, and you know, we've developed a palate. You know, my my mother, if she makes something, uh, and in fact, she just did it to me the other day. Uh, she made some chutney and then asked me to identify everything she put in there. You know, so we we've developed this palate. Okay, so it's, it's fairly easy. Yes, we haven't had that uh, historical uh, lineage in in, in winemaking, but. Uh, but hey, you know, at the end of the day, these are these are you know very easy translatable skill sets, you know. Well, and and I, I wonder if there is a, perhaps a lack of wine roots from India or South Asia. You both have very you know different maybe approaches um, to this, but even by just the name of Rasa, you know, vineyards or, or what you're talking about, Pinto, with sort of like the idea that like, look, we've grown up with complex tastes and flavors you know, all around us in that way. Is is there some value to, in some ways, kind of creating new roots and steering new stories that, that for the most part, each of your wines, you know, come with sort of a story? Is that story now being created as winemakers who are immigrants and, you know, winemakers who are of color, um, yes. you know, um, especially coming through in, in the products as you go forward? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I do want to... Uh, Put a little finer point point on it. I mean, this is the way I, I'm I'm proud to have kind of you know ultimately I'm proud that as a human being, regardless of my right race, right, I'm living a life that I'm proud of. That's the bottom line. Yeah. But living in a multiracial society, being a minority, I know the color of my skin impacts other people's perceptions, and and I think it's important that we excel. So I, it's never brought up, but if I'm in a country club and, you know, people are tasting my wines. They're talking to me. They obviously can see how passionate I am, uh, how, how intelligently I can advocate for my point of view. And all of a sudden, nothing matters. It's this person I'm talking to and this person is engaging. Right. And that's what it's really about. But uh, I mean, so it's never brought up. I never think of myself as a you know, I want to be identified as a Indian winemaker or, you know, anything like that. I, I want to be identified as, as a caring human who happens to make some great wine, right? Yeah. But but there is that undercurrent that, yes, you know, we are minorities. And I think it's important for us to represent ourselves in the best possible manner. When I, I think you're the wine that sort of inspired me to even ask that is this, the story behind the, in order to make a more perfect union. Um, piece where you know it's sort of there's a there's a backstory to who you guys are and and hopefully that's helping to build the the brand and cultivate it anymore. Billo, for you in in sort of thinking about your own journey as a winemaker, you are a, a master of wine and you've gone through through the even training process. Tell us a little bit about what that maybe journey was like. 
Yeah, it was. It's a it's a difficult journey. No matter, I think what uh, what your background is, it is the highest uh, professional certification you can get in the in the wine industry. The exams pass rate is uh, notoriously low to kind of get through everything. I think it's a roughly eight percent or so, nine percent pass rate. So it's a four day exam, so it tests every facet of the wine industry from viticulture, grape growing to winemaking to QA, QC, global current issues in the wine industry all around the world. It's a global exam. So it's not enough just to know North America or, or America, Washington State. You have to know what's happening everywhere in the world, in the in the in the in the wine world. The exam consists uh, you have to write 15 essays uh, over the course of four days. So you have roughly an hour per essay, uh, testing everything in the in the in the wine wine chain. What, the, what I think is the hardest uh, part for most people, hardest part for me certainly, uh, was the tasting exam. You have to identify 36 wines blind. The first day you get uh, 12 white wines, next day 12 reds, and uh, third days anything goes. Sparklers, dessert wines, rosés, fortifies, you name it, it's, it's on the exam. So they ask you very specific questions about each of the wines. Right? So typical things are, what are the varieties in the glass? Uh, what is the vintage? What is the commercial potential? Is that a $10 level bottle of wine or is that a $150 level bottle of wine? So uh, I've never had time tick by so so quickly as, I, as, it, as it happens on the practical, on the tasting exam. I swear it speeds up 2x, 3x. And before you know it, the bell's ringing and you're like, oh my goodness, what just happened to those two hours and 15 minutes? It was the hardest for me because I was always very good on the wines that, that, that uh, you know, North American wines and the wines we drink, you know, typically Bordeaux, Rhone, things like that. But I had never really tasted a Hunter Valley Semillon before I started the, the, the Endeavor, right? Or South African Chenin Blanc. These yeah. wines appear routinely on the exam. So, I spent uh, a lot of a lot of time and efforts buying all these wines from around the world and tasting and tasting and tasting. Yeah, uh, you know, I was tasting uh, probably that six months leading up to the exam, the the year I passed. I was probably tasting 30, 40 wines a day, right, yeah. uh, uh, every day, right, for about six, seven months, and gearing up that palate so that on the exam day, it's hopefully is muscle memory type of thing, right? You, you smell it, and yeah. taste it. Okay, I kind of know what this is. And you start drilling it down. And just at the end of it made me a vastly, vastly better, better taster. So yeah. I really did appreciate the experience, uh, despite all the cursing and all the head pounding against against the wall and all of that stuff. At the end of it, it is it is it is worth it. But uh, yeah. Well, and I and I know, Pinto, you're going through the process right now and hearing the, the rigor that goes behind it is impressive. I imagine that goes a long way towards building trust. With your, with your customers, with the people who are enjoying and drinking your wine, especially in a really competitive market. And then when you, when you establish kind of the stories behind how each of your wines has been you know, created, does that trust, does that background of, of all the rigor that you've developed behind your winemaking, how, how does that resonate, um, you think, with the folks who are now enjoying your wines? Like when they drink it, is there a sense of what's gone behind all the effort and the um, toil that's that really goes into winemaking. Yeah, I think if you're open to it, uh, yes. Well, the people that talk to us or they, or they hear us speak or they meet us at a winemaker dinner, it's unquestionable whether they like the wine or not. And, and I think everybody seems to like the wine. It, it, it's 
unquestionable that that our passion shines through, that our intelligence and our commitment shines through. I think what really helps is uh, we can use worldwide examples. So it really shows our commitment, not just to our high-end winemaker from Washington, but really understanding on a global perspective what wine really means. So if someone says, oh, this this wine kind of tastes like a you know, a Northern Rhone to me. And then I could say, yeah, you know, it's got some structural elements of a Northern Rhone, but the food concentration is much more because we're in the new world and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden you have a dialogue going and, and people are like, wow, this guy is really the real thing. I mean, he's really vested in learning about <laughs> where, wherever, you know, other, other regions around the world. I think- uh, As we like to say on the show, trust him, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. And I think that shines through in, in our communications with people and in, and in our wine. And is, is that the vehicle for communicating with those who are drinking your wine? So like, even if you've never met somebody who happens to be drinking your wine, is that hopefully the, the feeling that you want them to get when they, when they drink it, when they enjoy it, when they taste it, and they're, you know, in some ways developing a relationship with it? I'll let Bill answer. I, I have a, well, I'll answer first. Um, I actually, I think Bill and I differ in this. I, I don't really uh, because I tend to be much more flighty than, <laughs> than Bill. Uh, and, and since I love uh, 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 poetry, to, to, to me, honestly, um, the way I look at the wines I make, I, I, to me, it's my poem. I'm a horrible writer of poetry. I can appreciate it, but I cannot write. You know, if you drink it with a certain intent, if you're open-minded and you taste what you have in the glass and you think about the passion, the commitment that's gone into it. The act of you mindfully tasting my wine, you've made a connection with me. Yeah, I think uh, I think if you are really tasting the wine and, and connecting with it, then you are connecting really with our thought process and everything that has gone into into that wine. It is it, it, to me is 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 very, very similar to go into a museum and seeing the, the great, great artists and stuff. And you could spend like, I, and I've done this just, you know, literally sat there for, for an hour in, in front of, front of a Monet and things like that. And you're looking at all the brushstrokes and looking at all this and, and seeing the picture as a whole. I like to think that, well, what was he thinking when he's doing this stuff? Right. And, and it, it's almost inseparable looking at that and, and it conveys a certain feeling that, that, that invokes in you. Uh, and I and I very much kind of feel the same way uh, when I'm listening to a great piece of music. My my favorite composer is Beethoven. When I listen to his uh, Appassionata Sonata, for example, right, it makes evokes certain emotions in me, right, that he was probably intending in the in the in the listener, right. And I look at wine kind of that same way, that artistic expression that we've imparted into that wine. Uh, you know, some people are are sensitive and 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 good enough tasters that when they taste it, that you know, it's conveyed to them that that aspect and intent is is conveyed to them, and that is extremely rewarding. I can't tell you how many times we've received emails from people saying, "Hey, Billo, you know, we've opened up this this your 2010 Perfect Union, for example, on on our wedding anniversary, or to commemorate a 60th birthday, or, or things like that." We get all these emails. And just knowing that we are that person's part of that and made that occasion, you know, very special for them through our wine, there was no no other feeling like that, right? Uh, you know, a, a quick uh, a story. A few years ago, some uh, gentleman from Panama had emailed me and said, "Hey, you know, I'm going to be in the states 
I'm a big wine lover um, and I'm kind of researching Washington wines and, and you know, in, in my research, I've heard some good things about you guys. Can I get an appointment? And, and we went back and forth a bunch of times and, uh, and he came to the winery. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to be there. Then afterwards, I sent him an email. I said, you know, I, I hope, hope you had a wonderful time in Washington. I hope you loved our wine. And I, I, you know, my apologies for not being there. I would have very much liked to have met you. And his response to me was, uh, we did meet. I, I tasted your wine, and now I know you. I'm like, wow, this guy gets it. I, I, I still look, I have that email saved, and I look look at it from time to time for inspiration about what it is that I'm really trying to do here. Billo, you're you're someone who loves classical piano and and music and and pinto. I know you're a big baseball fan and a baseball enthusiast, but it seems like some parallels here in that where baseball and and classical piano music, which is in some ways kind of governed so much by tradition and governed so much by the past, yet needs to evolve to attract new fans, new listeners, new a new audience. Are, are there some common threads here with winemaking and how it continues to evolve for you both blending what's a very rich tradition and lots of rigor and academics behind it and, and real history with uh, contemporary new folks who are just getting introduced to wine perhaps for the very first time how do you how do you blend the two together and and make a sort of pathway forward as winemakers it's a great question there's a lot of things at play what's the nice thing and billo uh, touched on it before every year is different and there's always some different issues and now we're dealing with with the climate change um we're dealing with with the wildfires a lot of places are dealing with the, with lack of water. So there's always stuff going on. Things always evolving. So how, how better do we, you know, you know, vines on the average need about 18 inches of annual rainfall. But okay, you're in a drought prone region like uh, Limari Valley. Uh, you know, how, how are you, what are you going to do when you don't get that? Right. So there's, there's always some, there's some science behind it. There's some better viticulture practices to say, well, how do we uh, deficit irrigate this and get get as get what we want, but with with less water? You know, so it, the things are all, and then then there's the then there's the the consumer side where the the younger consumer, the millennials, uh, generally speaking, they're not what we call sticky consumers. They want to they like your product, they may love your product, but they're going to jump around. So how do you make them sticky? So part of the way we do it is every year we come out with a different wine, so it feels like. They're jumping around, but they're still part of the family. Another way we do it is, which is organic, we want to make these connections. So all our wine labels tell a different story about us. And I think millennials in particular, they want that organic connection. They really want to, to connect to us. And, and that's what we're about anyway. So, um, you know, we have one dogma in winemaking, and that is to make the best wines in the world. That's what we're, we're after. But we're mindful of, SO2 usage, mindful of natural winemaking and organic farming. And, you know, all this plays a part in pushing the narrative forward as, as wine evolves and wine marketing and enjoyment of wine um, evolves. That's great. Bill, Bill, how about you? Yep, I think uh, I'll, I'll touch up on Beethoven again. You know, like his, his music was, uh, he certainly employed a lot of, lot of well-known classical techniques in his day. 
but he also pushed the envelope. So on the winemaking side, you know, there are obviously classical techniques uh, that we employ. There are new techniques that we employ, and we are continually open to evolving, you know, using the, you know, paying homage to the classical techniques and then also incorporating these new things to kind of create uh, what is hopefully a new work of art in the wine that will, you know, down the road also be be fully appreciated, right? Also in the moment now when people are tasting it, but also 10, 20 years, 30 years from now, some of our, our wines, you know, people are going to pull them out of the cellar and say, yeah, you know, this is this is still this is still alive. This this wine this wine is still evolving and 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 still moving, um, and they can appreciate that at a different phase in its in its maturity curve, right? Uh, ultimately, it's it's about the human experience and and how we make that more meaningful for us. For me, baseball. When uh, I uh, we came to this country, I was eight below us below six. We happened to be good at cricket back in India, right? Came here and baseball was a natural extension of that. And then we became part of the fabric of America through baseball. Uh, baseball is the fabric of America. You know, uh, we initially got all our friends through baseball. And it's that transcending quality that anything has if you're open enough to it. As we look for things that are changing in music, you push the envelope in writing and poetry, whatever, but ultimately, the underlying factor is this transcendent quality to make this human uh, connection more uh, real and, and meaningful. Well, listen, any human experience that involves wine, baseball, Beethoven, I, I'm, I'm sold. So, um, <laughs> and, and thank you both so much for, for joining us. It's been a real treat and, and I hope we can invite you back again and to join us. Thank you very much, we love it. Yeah, thank you. It was, it was uh, great chatting with you. Thanks, guys. And check out more at rasavineyards.com. That's R-A-S-A vineyards.com. Thanks, Rajan Mama, for the link up. And a shout out to Anaga and Tommy. I sense a Rainbow Mountain wine coming soon. Perhaps even taste it. Till next time, I'm Abhay Darnika. This is Sunju. Check out my show, Cam Life, every Friday, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. That's 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, only on Ruckus Avenue Radio.